Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. Today I'm talking with Douglas C. Bates about his book, Piro's Way, the ancient Greek version of Buddhism, out now on Sumeru Books. In ancient Greece, a group of philosophers developed highly effective techniques to change our thoughts for the better, allowing practitioners to achieve inner peace. They called their philosophy Pyrrhonism, after the founder of their school, Pyrrho. He travelled to India and brought back with him ideas from Buddhism, reshaping them to fit into Greek philosophy. Pyrrho agreed with the Buddha that delusion was the cause of suffering. But instead of using meditation to end delusion, he applied Greek philosophical rationalism. Piro's Way lays out the Pyrrhonist path for modern readers, giving clear guidance on how to apply Pyrrhonist practice to everyday life. Stephen Batchelor describes the book as succeeding in making a difficult and obscure philosophy not only intelligible, but more to the point, something to be practiced in a way that can make a difference to your life here and now. And Christopher Beckwith describes it as an intelligent, readable book that succeeds in its goal of introducing Pyrrhonism as practice. Douglas C. Bates is the founder of the modern Pyrrhonism movement and has been a Zen practitioner for over 25 years. And he was also a founding member of Boundless Way Zen. Enjoy. Let's dive into the first question. You describe yourself as a Pyrrhonist. Let's start with the basics for context. Where and when does Pyrrhonism emerge? Who was its founder? And how much influence did it gain while he was alive? So the pronunciation is Pyrrho and Pyrrhonism. Oh, thank you for correcting me. Pyrrho was a Greek philosopher. He was a follower of Democritus. We think of Democritus as a pre-Socratic philosopher, but he was actually a direct contemporary of Socrates. And Plato absolutely despised Democritus and wanted all of his books burned. Hmm. Before age 33, Pyrrho had become a member of Alexander the Great's court as a court philosopher, among many court philosophers, because Alexander was the uh, student of Aristotle and very interested in philosophy. And Pyrrho was part of Alexander's traveling court while he was on military campaign to India. And he took it upon himself as a job, as the other philosophers did, to learn about the people and the philosophies of the new lands conquered by Alexander. This got Pyrrho all the way to India. And he was in Taxila, India for approximately a year and a half, studying what the Indian philosophers had to say. And uh, one of those Indian philosophers, Kalanos, 
accompanied Alexander's court on the way back to Greece. He only got about halfway before he died. So Pyrrho had a great deal of time to learn about Indian philosophy. We do not know very much directly about what Pyrrho said. Um, There's one quote of his that's preserved uh, where he summarizes his philosophy, and it is a quote of a quote of a quote of a quote. So there's some concerns about how accurate it is. Uh, We have a number of quotes from his student, Timon. Pyrrho's a a figure much like Socrates. Socrates wrote nothing. We depend entirely on what other people said that Socrates said. So Timon is our Plato in this regard. Unfortunately, all of Timon's works are lost. We only have quotes of Timon. We have only uh, the works of a very late Pyrrhonus philosopher, Sextus Empiricus, to give us an idea of what Pyrrhonism, in a very full sense of what it was about. The very interesting things about Pyrrhonism is that once in like the 19th and 20th centuries, once Western philosophers started becoming aware of Buddhist philosophy, they started noticing, well, gee, this has a lot of similarities with Pyrrhonism. For example, Nietzsche considered Pyrrho to be a Buddha. That's the the provenance of it. Pyrrho seems to be very influenced by Democritus and uh, to have taken a number of ideas that were extant in Greek philosophy at the time and create an entirely novel arrangement of them that mysteriously parallels a lot of things we see in Buddhism. Right, right. Okay, interesting. You mentioned Buddhism, and we'll get on to that in a second. What sort of drove your your spark of interest in Pyrrhonism? And if it is, uh, you know, a source of human knowledge, which is, like many historical sources, problematic in saying its authenticity, the second, third, fourth hand, what drove you to go into this and then write about it and develop such an interest for it? Well, like all humans, I had a rough spot in my life, which was uh, now about 20 years ago been a Zen Zen practitioner for a long time. And I was finding like sitting just really wasn't quite doing it for me with the problems I was experiencing. And I happened to see an article about uh, Stoicism. As you may or may not know, there's a lot of interest these days in Stoicism. If you go into bookstores now, you're in the philosophy section, you're likely to find a whole bunch of books promoting uh, stoicism as a you know a self-help practice, a uh, a form of spirituality that modern people can relate to, and that attracted my interest. And I started reading a whole bunch about stoicism, and I, I thought it was very interesting. And there are a, a large number of self-help techniques uh, preserved from ancient Greek literature that are conveyed in the Stoic literature, and I found these helpful in in a practical way that I think is missing from a lot of Buddhism, or at least the Buddhism I've been exposed to. This got me interested in, more broadly, Greek philosophy. So 
you know, after I read all the original stuff of the Stoics and after I read all of things Cicero wrote, then I started reading what we have preserved of Epicurean philosophy. Then I read Aristotle and Plutarch. I eventually got to one of the less read people, Sextus Empiricus, and I'm reading Sextus Empiricus and I'm having the same epiphany that a lot of people have had, except I've studied a lot of Buddhism. It's like, oh my goodness. Sexus Empiricus, he's like a Zen master, except he makes sense. Because what Sexus Empiricus talks about is in the language of Western philosophy and our traditions of, of rationality. It's not mysterious stuff like koans. Sexus also gives a set of things that you could call spiritual practices that I found very effective for the kinds of things that were troubling me at mm -hmm. that time. And I've subsequently learned that these spiritual practices exist. Uh, they exist in Madhyamaka, but I don't know if you've ever read Madhyamaka stuff. It's very perplexing. Whereas Sextus makes many, many of the same arguments that Nagarjuna makes, but he makes them in the normal language that we're uh, accustomed to in uh, the Western tradition. And they mm. make sense. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I'm sure we'll get onto some of that in a moment. But before we do, okay, you've mentioned Zen Buddhism. Are you still a Zen Buddhist practitioner? And, and what's your current relationship with it, bearing in mind what you've just said? Well, sure. Uh, I still very much consider myself a Zen Buddhist. Quite a few years ago, I relocated from the Boston suburbs to the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. I lived down a mile-long dirt road in the middle of the woods, so there is no Sangha anywhere near me. So I'm, I'm a solo practitioner now, a kind of a hermit, you might uh, say but I still very much consider myself a Zen Buddhist. It's been a while since I hauled myself off to a Zen retreat, but I still do occasionally. Many Westerners have sought out a Western form of Buddhism. And you mentioned Stoicism, and that's certainly been a kind of popular go-to option uh, for many. And like you, I've noticed it's, it's sort of come in for a bit of a revival. My son, who's 15, even ends up watching videos on YouTube of the top 10 lessons the Stoics can teach you. Yep. And of course, you know, there's a certain kind of American commercialism to all of that. But, you know, for a 15-year-old, it's probably quite nice. Uh, another one is Christian mysticism. Some have kind of looked for that. And of course, there are all the invented traditions that have come and gone and some have stuck. Now, you've picked on Pyrrhonism. I just wonder, though, I mean, you kind of gave a partial answer, but maybe you can say more. I wonder to what degree it is necessary to go through this whole procedure when the resources we have from Buddhism are so rich and seemingly never-ending. Why spend time digging out this ancient Greek tradition? Why not, why not just look a bit more at Zen and, and maybe you'll find what you're looking for there? Well, I did 20 years of Zen practice and didn't find it working for the thing that was bothering mm. me at the time. Maybe I'm uniquely stupid, <laughs> but I... I'm calling not to think so. <laughs> okay. All right. So you, you found, I mean, we, we, it's remaining a bit vague, but that's absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. Let's pick up on another thing you said before, which was about spiritual practice. It's itself an interesting word, but there is a, a man who's been quite prominent uh, within the world of philosophy and the history of philosophy and thinking quite a lot about what the Greeks said and, and what the Greeks did in terms of practices. And if we want to call them spiritual practices, that's fine. His name is Pierre Hador. 
Now, he, he actually writes about a set of spiritual practices that range from uh, forms of dialogue, meditative reflection, and theoretical contemplation. How much do you know about him, and what do you make of his work, and has it influenced your engagement with uh, Pyrrhonism at all? I love Hedo, and I've read a couple of his works, and also recently an online writer has been serializing his work to translate Pierre Hedo's wife's work, also on mm. the same subject, uh, which at present only exists in French. And his wife was uh, had interest in this subject before Pierre did. Another writer that's also very important uh, on this exact same subject is Foucault, although his work is much less well-known. The big story here is that our present conception of philosophy is very different from how the ancient Greeks viewed philosophy. Philosophy was a, a care of the soul project. It was a, uh, a form of spirituality. Ancient Greek religion is a, a very different thing from what we conceive of as religion. They, they were not much concerned with belief. Uh, they were very much concerned with practice. You know, there was the proper way of making sacrifices to the gods, and it was a more like communal ritual type thing than a belief system. The, the myths they had about their gods were you know, often quite contradictory. And another thing that's interesting here, we're familiar with the Delphic maxims, which are supposedly things that were pronounced by Apollo. Well, the truth is, and the, the cognoscenti back then knew the truth, that the seven sages of Greece came up with these maxims and put them into the mouth of Apollo. One of those seven sages was the first person in Greece considered a philosopher, Thales. So philosophy is really where in Greek you get spirituality and not religion. As we've heard in your, your writings and in your text, you often, you don't just pick up on Buddhism, but you also compare key concepts from them, right? You mentioned Nagarjuna beforehand. Now, a, a core concept in all Hellenistic philosophies, and here a pronunciation challenge may come up, is right? Eudaimonia, <laughs> uh, something like that, okay? Uh -huh. um, how does it relate to Buddhist ideals? And, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a facetious question, but I quite like it. Why should we care about such a concept? Eudaimonia is, in a certain sense, a straightforward concept. It usually gets translated as happiness, but it's a, a great deal bigger than that. You know, it's a a good life, a flourishing life, the best life you could be, could have, you might think of it as like self-actualization. And it is probably the closest concept we have from the Greeks to compare with the Indian concept of enlightenment. Hmm. For the Greeks, it is a much more practical thing. There's nothing, you know, really transcendental to it like the, the Indians have. You know, this is again going back to the separation, this concept of spirituality, philosophy, and religion. I, I think we all recall that Socrates got condemned to death for uh, supposedly creating new gods. The priests in, in Greece were very protective of their turf. Quite a few philosophers were threatened with death. You know, for example, Protagoras was threatened with death and he had to flee. The philosophers in Greece could talk about spirituality, but 
when it came to setting themselves up as re religious figures in any way, that was a no-go territory. They couldn't do that. Whereas in India, uh, you could easily mix these things. Okay. I don't know if that makes sense with regard does, to your question. But I just wonder why we'd compare it then to something like enlightenment, which is such a loaded term, obviously. Just to continue with that thought, I mean, you mentioned transcendence, right? And often we we place that in opposition to something like imminence or imminent practice. I guess a, a follow-up question for me would be something along the lines of, well, is this just talking about human flourishing and well-being, or are we still imagining a concept which points to some kind of higher-level freedom, right, or some more radical form of freedom that goes beyond just, you know, I'm living a good life, I'm good to go, I'm not in reaction to my emotions, because that's not quite sometimes what Buddhism is pointing to, right, with this, this concept. Of course, enlightenment comes with this concept of, you know, you will be free from the cycles of birth and death, uh, and you're not going to reincarnate again. You know, certainly we have Westerners who believe in that, but I think that's a hard sell among Westerners. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> and those are probably the people that don't become Buddhists, right? I think a large percentage of Buddhists in the West certainly do believe there is some kind of goal at the end of it. And if they can live well in the meantime, they're, they're probably quite happy with that. But that's, uh, that's fine. Now, a belief of course, can exist. And, you know, if you believe in the idea of enlightenment being something quite dramatic, then that's a concept you carry around in your head, I guess, somewhere. It's also a key concept or key idea of practice in Pyrrhonism, or rather, I should say, uh, um, the absence of belief. Now, I've read that, you know, one of the goals or potential goals of Pyrrhonism is to actually suspend all belief on all matters, even in everyday life, which sounds an awful lot like some kind of radical skepticism. Is that what it is? And if not, what are we talking about? No. You know, we have terrible problems of translation. Yes, there are a lot of uh, Western philosophers who have looked at Pyrrhonism and interpret it in this way. I assure you there are also philosophers who look at Pyrrhonism and do not interpret it in that way. So this is a translation issue. What we think of as belief in English is a very broad category. And the kinds of beliefs that the Pyrrhonists were talking about is a much narrow category. I mean, we have a problem here. You translate the term for this a narrow Greek category, and you put it into this term for a broad English category, and then you start doing your analysis, and you've screwed up something at your data step, and you come up with things that are all wrong. And the ancient Pyrrhonists were quite clear about a differentiation between two sorts of things that the ancient Greeks took as a matter of course because it was built into their language in a way that is not built into our language. The ancient Greeks distinguished sharply between the realm of what we would call appearances, or if you read a Stoic text, they will call it impressions, and uh, the realm of what is the, the truth about reality. The, the Greek term for truth actually is uh, very interesting. It, is, uh, a, uh, it means uncovered 
That's its etymology. You're probably familiar with uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. Plato here uh, in his allegory, if you recall, the people in the cave are seeing these shadows. Well, those shadows in Greek philosophy and, and Greek language are the appearances. And the idea of the philosopher is that they escape from this cave and they see true reality. So all, all of the ancient Greek philosophers took this as basically how things are. So the, the realm of appearances is you know, the, the phenomenal world around us, the, the world of things we touch and taste and see, the sensations of our body, like feeling hungry, and even like stuff that pops into your mind, at least with regard to it being in your mind, is an appearance. But these things that are, you know, hypothetical that you cannot uh, really have, you know, uh, uh, physical evidence for. Um, uh, and, and there would be these uh, claims about, like, for example, the, the Stoics claimed that the universe was providential. The ancient Greeks had no way of actually proving that. You know, I don't think we have any way of proving it. And most people who are involved in modern Stoicism have dropped this belief. And this was the sort of thing that the ancient Pyrrhonists critique. You, you, you cannot go from the appearances to, to make that kind of claim. And that's the kind of belief you should shun. What you're describing so far in our conversation are quite rational practices. What about other practices that might have existed with the Pyrrhonists? I understand that they were not engaging in necessarily meditative style practices, or were they? And if not, what would be, let's say, another standard practice for a Pyrrhonist? The Greeks do mention meditation, but we just do not have examples of it that really match what we see in, in India. You, meditation is basically like sitting down and thinking about something, uh, and it doesn't you know, very well match the kind of spiritual things we see with uh, Indian religions. There were a whole bunch of things that are very commonly found in the, the kinds of videos your 15-year-old is watching about, techniques that the Greeks came up with for addressing mental distress. And many of them have like no key relationship with a philosophy. These are just things that they found that worked and uh, were therefore attached to philosophy. Like there's one called the premeditation of evils. Uh, it's one of my favorites to mention because we know who created it. One of Socrates' students, Aristippus, created it, and he is the founder of a short-lived school uh, known as the Cyrenaic School. And the Cyrenaics were hedonists, but this technique became very popular among all of the schools of philosophy, and it's now promoted, oh, you know, this is a stoic technique. Any two philosophies could uh, be said to be completely antithetical to each other. Stoicism and Serenaicism are absolutely antithetical, but it's passed off as a stoic technique. And the thing is, the technique, while it originates in ideas of Serenaic philosophy, really is applicable to anyone. It's that you know, we are distressed when bad things happen that uh, catch us by surprise. So if you don't want to be distressed, think beforehand about all the ways things could go wrong so that when they do go wrong, you're prepared for them and they're not a shock. 
You've mentioned Stoicism again, and that's that's the topic that people go to, as we, we suggested at the beginning. What's the relationship between Stoicism and Pyrrhonism? What do you think Pyrrhonism has to add to the kind of stoically curious searching the internet today? In the flourishing era of the Hellenistic age, Stoicism was the dominant philosophy. The Stoics... Uh, were the ones, you know, uh, setting the major terms of debate, and they had the the biggest followings, and the other philosophies that competed with them tended to very much position themselves versus the Stoics. And we think of the the big rivalry being between the the Stoics and the Epicureans because those were indeed the two most popular philosophies to practice. But the Peronists also saw themselves as, um, saw the Stoics as their chief philosophical opponents. The Stoics were tremendously optimistic with regard to what could be known. And you could say that the Peronists, in contrast, were very pessimistic about what could be known. Therefore, Stoic practice is built on things that the Stoics believed and they convinced themselves that they knew, whereas Pyrrhonus practice was about don't get caught up into these things that uh, are believed. These beliefs will cause you distress. So we talked before about uh, the providential universe. Most current practitioners of Stoicism don't believe in that, but you can absolutely find ones who do. They consider call themselves traditional Stoicism. If you can get your, yourself to believe this, uh, I really do think it has significant uh, therapeutic value. And it's essentially the same sort of belief that millions and millions of Christians and Muslims have, that everything that happens is God's will. You just don't understand his plan, but you should accept it and be happy with it. The same idea with regard to the providential universe. The Stoic belief that still has a great deal of currency is this belief that virtue is the only good. Uh, They would contrast themselves against the Epicureans, who believed that pleasure was good, and as was the avoidance of pain. So that was you know, a, a big tension there. The Aristotelians considered that there were many goods. Virtue was just one of them. They considered money, status, health, uh, physical comfort to be goods. Uh, we think a lot about that now, although there were not a lot of Aristotelians at the, the height of the Hellenistic age. The, the parents, on the other hand, denied that we actually have any firm knowledge of what is good and what is evil. The Peronists sound tremendously like the Buddhists in this regard. You know, if you've read the, the Faith Mind poem, you know, which talks about, you know, you make the slightest distinction between good and evil and you set heaven and earth apart. Get rid of these ideas. That's much more the, the Peronist approach. Your book, Pyro's Way, or Pyro's Way at this point, <laughs> The ancient Greek version of Buddhism is out on Sumeru books. What kind of person do you think you were writing to when you put together that book? Well, you know, first I was writing it for myself. <laughs> right, yeah. 
I highly recommend Marcus Aurelius's meditations, which he wrote for himself. It's a very therapeutic mm -hmm. practice. The people who read my book, my core audience are people who have investigated Buddhism, find that they want it supplemented or explicated or are, are fascinated by connections with uh, Western spirituality and Western practice, or they are dissatisfied Buddhists. Those seem to be the people who are most interested in it. Uh, we also have people who have tried Stoicism and also found it wanting and are interested in looking at other Hellenistic forms of spirituality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, look, let me ask you ju just one more question. I mean, you've spent quite a few years now working with this, and I wonder if you had to kind of sum up the greatest gain you've made from engaging with it, what would that be? I think the biggest issue that people have is that they're very convinced that they know what is good and they know what is bad. And, you know, we have a lot of things in our society that reinforce this, uh, particularly our media anymore about politics. You, you pick one of those colors and you join that team and you, you listen to their slogans and their cheers and they, they demonize the other side. And people are really getting sucked down this, this kind of rabbit hole in a way that they did not used to when I was younger. People seem to be so much more agitated now about all sorts of things in ways that I just don't remember seeing people get agitated like 20 and 30 years ago. Uh, we have a, a media and a, a social environment that's become you know, relatively toxic. These therapies that we have from the ancient Greeks for dealing with all of this this dogmatism is tremendously therapeutic and really needed in the present day. And this is uh, what I think has helped me to the greatest degree. Mm. Great. Yeah, and I agree more. Um, wow, we live in a complex present. So I think any kind of uh, helping hand in coming to terms with overbearing beliefs has got to be good. So there it is, folks. That's Piro's Way, the ancient Greek version of Buddhism. And you've been listening to Doug Bates. Uh, Doug, thanks for coming on and telling us about your book. And best of luck with your future work. And uh, if people want to find out more, you have a Substack. What's the name of that and how do people locate it? Well, it's actually on medium.com. Oh, apologies. Okay. It's uh, Peronism at medium.com. Okay. And I write occasional articles on topics related to Peronism. Great. Yeah. And I've read a few of them and, and they're great and perfectly accessible and if anybody is unsure about buying the book, you can go there and, and find a, an overview of the whole topic, and I recommend doing so. Okay, Doug, um, you enjoy the rest of your day, and all the best. Okay, thank you very much. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast, and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, 
I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality and religion. Much of what I have specialised in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. 